This is Legislatures, the inside story, and I'm your host, Tim Story, the CEO of the National Conference of State Legislatures. Several million of our fellow citizens have answered the call of public service and make their career working in local, state, and federal government. They are dedicated to making sure that the programs adopted by legislatures at all levels of government are well-run and serve the needs of all Americans. Their roles, so often behind the scenes, are crucial enough that Congress created the National Academy of Public Administration, NAPA. NAPA is committed to excellence in governance at all levels and promoting ways for all public servants to be their best. We're going to learn more about that today with my guest. Terry Gerton, President and CEO of the National Academy of Public Administration, NAPA. I'm so glad that you could join me today to be on the podcast. Uh, Thank you. Tim, I am delighted to be here, and I'm also delighted to congratulate you on your recent election as a fellow of NAPA. Welcome to the fellowship. I am a new fellow of NAPA and uh, and pretty excited about that. I see so much potential in it, and and that's one of the big things we're going to talk about. I, I want I want legislators, legislative staff, and others who follow along at home here on the uh, the Inside Story podcast to learn about NAPA. Let's lay the foundation right there. So tell us about your role and what is NAPA and uh, and and what is my discount on auto parts now that I'm a fellow. That's the big question. <laughs> you know, I actually have a picture in my office that says, Napa, we don't do wine or auto parts. So I can't help you with that. <laughs> I'll bet you've heard that joke about a thousand times and I was reluctant to use it but I because of that. So I love that you, you've heard it so many times you've pre-planned with a sign, like stop it with the Napa jokes. Um, what is Napa, the real Napa? Tell us about that. The National Academy of Public Administration is one of only two congressionally chartered national academies. You know about the National Academy of Science, but NAPA is its sister organization. Um, We were created in 1967 by James Webb, who at that point was the administrator of NASA, who said, I know where to go for my scientific expertise. I go to the National Academy of Sciences but I'm starting up a new organization here. Where do I go for public administration expertise? There is no equivalent organization. So he got together with some of his buddies and created NAPA. And it was largely, um, at that point, convened out of past presidents of the American Society for Public Administration, ASPA. So they got together and they created the organization and began to bring in experts on public administration And that group then pushed through with Congress a congressional charter in 1984. So Napa was created in 1967, but not chartered by Congress until 1984. And our congressional charter specifically tells us that we're supposed to be responsive to government agencies at all levels of government around issues of public administration. And so we do that predominantly through the fellowship of the academy. People like you um, with long careers of excellent service in public administration are nominated and elected into fellowship with the academy. So this is not like a one-year student fellowship or it's not a visiting fellowship. Once you get elected, in theory, you're a fellow for the rest of your life. And we bring the expertise of our fellows to our government clients through contractual fee-for-service arrangements predominantly. But for a minute, let me brag on our fellowship because we have nearly a thousand fellows and they come from the entire cross section of public administration. So about a third of them 
are or have been professional academics, folks who are doing leading edge research in universities, who are deans of um, schools of public administration, uh, who really bring to us the latest thinking around best practices in public administration. We have about a third who are or were practitioners at the federal level. So senior executives in career federal service or political appointees with, with long tenures in government who've led every cabinet agency, uh, managed budgets, worked on the Hill, really know how the federal government process works. And the other third are state and local practitioners. So we have some former governors, we have city managers, county managers, folks who are in state and local government at all in all of its different manifestations. And that is what makes the National Academy of Public Administration really unique. So when you're looking at whether or not a grant program is effective or who should be in charge of a program that several different agencies or levels are responsible for, Napa is the only good government organization that really looks at that from the intergovernmental perspective, thinking about all of the stakeholders that are engaged there and brings the latest academic research to that construct as well. Typically, our, our work is, here's a problem. What should I do about that? We don't try to just diagnose the problem or say, yep, that's a problem. But rather, not only is it a problem, but here's what the latest thinking, the best practices tell us is the solution set for that problem. So that's the quick elevator pitch on Napa. Quick, and I'm pretty sure you have barely scratched the surface of what you do. This is not meant to be a, a pop quiz trap by any stretch of the imagination, but my question is, do you have any very rough estimate of how many Americans currently have a career in public in the public sector and public administration? We would call public servants. Like how many people do that? Not enough. <laughs> First of all, I mean, you know, at the federal government level, we talk about 2.5 million civilians work for the federal government and all of its different characteristics. And the people who study the federal workforce say even that's an undercount because of all the folks in contracted services, you know, consultants, all of those kinds of folks that also support the federal government. I think the latest number I heard about state and local government was like another three to four million. So you think all of that together, six and a half to seven million actually on government payrolls, plus some other number of folks who are busy providing contractual services to the government. That is not enough to do the things we ask government to do. At the legislative side of things, I mean, obviously a very sort of niche world of public service. There are roughly 25,000 full-time legislative staff, not counting the 7,386 elected officials. And then there's about another 10,000 who are temporary. They'll come in for the session. So it's a tiny fraction of the public service. Of course, th these, especially the elected officials are constantly thinking about these state workforces, you know, who technically work for the executive branch and the governor, but, you know, are often um, very closely intertwined with legislative uh, directives and statutory guidance. So, um, so I, I think for you know, if you're a state legislator listening to this or a legislative staff director, you know, the question is, what are the big challenges right now in in public sector world? I have a pretty good idea. You already alluded to one when you said not enough. There's definitely a lot of discussion inside legislatures about their own staffs 
um, and then certainly among legislators about uh, state, you know, state employees, state workforces, a lot of gnashing of teeth. There's a lot, there's a great deal of turnover and it's the, given the labor market, you know, next to impossible to fill jobs with qualified people. So is that one of the big challenges and what are the other challenges right now for public administration? Well, certainly the workforce is a big one. And we think about it, not just in terms of numbers, but in capacity, right? Do you have the capacity in your government to deliver the goods and services uh, and benefits programs that you are expecting that government to deliver? As an example, we talk a lot about grants management and at the federal level, these billions and trillions of dollars that are coming out through new legislation around infrastructure investment, the ARPA Recovery Act, the CHIPS Act, the Inflation Recovery Act, all of those are pushing billions of dollars to the states. Well, if your state government workforce doesn't have the capacity or the people who know how to receive those grants, process those grants, account for those grants, compete for those grants where they have to be competed for, your state government is not going to receive the additional benefits of all of those programs. So like a very straightforward place is to say, do I have the capacity to manage the grant money and the investment money that my state could have access to? That flows right on down to communities, right? Big cities typically have large grant um, staffs. They know how to apply for those. They're very competitive. But a little town of $25,000 or 25,000 people probably doesn't have a grant writer on staff, whereas that town might really need money in the Infrastructure Investment Act to put into their water system, right? If you don't have the capacity to execute that function of government, your community or your state may be missing out on tremendous resources that could benefit all of your constituents, all of your population. So that's a, a, a it's not a, a small one. We can't expect government to be free, right? Especially when it comes to people. In the same kind of way, investment in IT is a, is a huge challenge for governments at all levels. I don't even want to hazard a guess as to how many federal IT systems are still on COBOL and Fortran? It's the number's not zero, right? <laughs> and yet our, our funding systems tend not to be organized to allow us to make capital investments, right? They're organized to allow us to pay for expenses as we incur them, but to transition major IT systems, whether that's data collection, funds distribution, you know, the topic du jour is the IRS's systems, which are still so uh, heavily paper oriented. We have to make conscious investments in that kind of technology infrastructure to have government be able to deliver the kind of services that we expect it to deliver for the, the residents in our communities. So those are just a couple of resource questions. Um, but the other thing that I think we're finding is regardless of the question that you ask about government, right? You could ask climate change, you could ask roads and rails, you could ask equity and justice, you could ask election management. None of those problems sits alone, right? In these days, every single problem in public governance and management is a multi-sector, multi-level, multidisciplinary solution set. And if we're not careful, 
the natural inclination of our system is to silo. So I think the biggest challenge that we have at every level of government is giving ourselves and the people who work for us the flexibility to get all the right people at a table, a virtual table or a physical table, to really design system-wide solutions to the challenges that we have ahead. I'm fond of a saying, and I can't remember who said now, that great leaders are great simplifiers. The more you can simplify these overwhelming, daunting problems, the better off you'll be in terms of, uh, you know, not getting people to step forward, go, go on offense against these things. Do you ever worry that things are just too complex now? I mean, there's, you didn't even mention cybersecurity and IT systems and, and everything seems to always point to a resources problem. Like we need more resources, right? And then that's, that's such a difficult starting point. I think these are hard and complex problems and, and we shouldn't try to make them too simple, but I think there's kind of a simple approach to them. Think about who's affected by this program and are you listening to their voice? Think about who's, who owns or has control of any of the inputs into this process and are they at the table? Make sure that you don't fall subject to the we've always done it that way problem. Do you have the courage to say, yeah, but but it's not working anymore. And is there a better way to do it? So voice of the customer, cross-agency, stakeholder collaboration, new ways of, of moving, and then try and test, right? So kind of what I've outlined there are, are some things that we've been researching and publishing in our Agile Government Center, where you take the concepts of Agile software design and you transition them to management. And they're really helpful, right? Do you understand the mission? Do you understand who your customer, your client is and what they want? Do you understand who else you need to talk to to find a solution set? And then start trying and testing. Another great management saying is don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Try something, get something going, do it in 120 day sprints, come back and say, well, that worked. Let's, Let's build or that didn't work. Let's change. Even though the problems are complex, that to me gives you a framework of starting to bite off progress at solutions. What advice do you give to legislators and legislative leaders who, you know, their ultimate pressure points are the elections themselves and the constituents who are coming to them and saying, you know, I want you to do everything, but whatever you do, don't raise my taxes, you know, cut the other person's priority so you can fund my priority. When you think about public administration and the challenges, how do you counsel elected officials who have those cross currents? Well, that is a great question. And it's a line of conversation that we've been trying with some federal legislators for a while, which is before you pass another law about any program, stop. And let's go back to say, what is this? what do you want this program to do? Right? What is the outcome that you are seeking? Um, is it smoother rail transportation? Is it better water systems? Is it new services to communities that have been left behind? What, what is the outcome of the legislation? And now let's think about how we can optimize the amount of resources that you're about to appropriate that goes to outcomes and not to overhead. I'm just talking legislative programs as opposed to other pieces, but what we've 
done for a long time is write legislation that is very specific about compliance and not very specific about outcomes. And one of the pieces of work that we did early in COVID was to look at the CARES Act, which actually pushed money out to states with very little oversight regulation. We were we were we were lobbying hard for that actually. That would be sort of <laughs> that was our preference. But we had members of Congress going, we're not really comfortable with this, and we want somebody to come back and tell us whether the flexibility was the right thing to do. And we would say yes. We we were able to articulate so many cases where states and communities got very innovative and really created all kinds of new new solution sets that served their residents in the way that the, the law was intended, that the funds were intended, and that really reduced the amount of oversight, reporting, special IT systems, all this other kind of stuff. If I could give just one piece of advice, it would be to legislate in a way that focuses on outcomes. We'll take care of the accountability of the process, but don't we don't need to specify that at the level of detail we have in the past and make more of those resources available to deliver the programmatic outcomes. That's how you get better outcomes without raising taxes. So we also know that the nature of, particularly the nature of the media in the United States, is that for all of those great programs and flexibility and innovation that, that happened under the CARES Act or um, under the uh, COVID, uh, the first COVID, you know, there were, there were four COVID packages and then inflation, and then the infrastructure bill too was in there. For all those stories, there's the one story of the, the dog park that got built next to the mayor's, you know, because the mayor has three dogs and Oh, you know, there's there's those stories that seem inevitable, right? But but there's this strongly embedded in American culture perception of government, of public workers, of government workers. As someone who is maybe the spokesperson for all of public administration, um, not to not to give you too much pressure there. How do you answer those folks? Because I know legislators think about those things. You're right, and there's no easy answer for that the most productive response is have your counterpoint ready, which was, you're right, it cost us $50,000 and that dog park did get built, but we saved $500,000 of your money by not having to report at this level of detail. And that $500,000 went here. Or you're right, we do have three people to plant one tree and you could do it for one. But those three people also take care of Safety. They make sure that you don't cut a utility line. They make sure that the trees don't go on the wrong side of the property line, right? So you're never going to get away from that one failure story. But if you have the flip side story to tell, over time, the success story outweighs the mistake story. Is that something that Napa does, is try to tell those stories? We do. We try to tell the stories about people who are out there doing great things in their communities. We have a weekly podcast (laughs) where we feature um, a lot of our fellows who are out doing amazing things, especially related to our grand challenge. And we try to tell their stories as well. Like, how'd you get into public administration? Why do you keep doing it? What What is the benefit? Why do you stay with it? Personally, for me, they're incredibly heartwarming. I know most of these folks and their stories are just amazing, but the average person may not know why 
you know, a city manager stays doing that kind of work um, or how they engage their city council with their community to really make sure that they're addressing those solutions. So we do that. We have daily newsletters that go out that kind of highlight success stories and the, and the news in public administration. And in many of our studies, we try to put forward examples of where great things are happening because there is a lot of good work going on. And I'm talking to a, a fellow public administrator, but the people who are doing this work are so compelled by it. They want to do good for their for their community, for the people they live and work with. They're oftentimes frustrated by the system, but they're always trying to make it work for the communities that they serve. And that's a really um, a powerful place to be. Well, that, that seems like the obvious segue to the question of, what about you, Terry Girton? How did you find yourself as someone who is in such a key role and cares so much about the general good and serving the public? How did you get here? Well, my typical answer is divine intervention, because no one would have ever plotted my course um, if you'd set out to do it. Really, my exposure to public service started when I went to West Point, which I did because I knew that I needed a job and I didn't know what else I wanted to do. And I would get a free four-year education and a five-year job. Service in the military and and the community engagement that that entails in the the service ethos that kind of gets bonded into you was hard to leave behind. So when I retired after 20 years, I joined the career civil service in the Department of Defense. And I did that for about eight and a half years. And then I tried consulting for a little while. I was probably a failed consultant, um, but I learned a lot in that process. I came back as a political appointee in the Department of Labor working on veteran employment right after the Great Recession when veteran employment was tending towards 13 to 15%. And that was, first of all, an amazing learning experience, but second of all, something I'm really proud of and what we were able to do systemically to change the processes by which veterans transitioned into civilian opportunities. By the time I left, veteran unemployment was below the national unemployment average, and it stayed there even through COVID. Makes me feel like the systems we put in place held And from there, I was fortunate enough to come to Napa and to get engaged there in a different level of service and engagement. So it's really been a lovely career path. Every job I've had, I've thoroughly enjoyed, but it's not one that anyone would ever pick out of a planning book. (laughs) There's a lot to, to talk about there. What is this remarkable success? I mean, almost a legacy of being part of the veterans unemployment issue? Because I mean, I know you can never declare permanent success, but it would seem as if there's a lot of very black and white data that this this is a success story. This is something that, you know, some resources were, were put into, emphasis was placed on, and we can now say uh, that there's been tremendous progress on that. I hope you take pride in that. You should. Well, I do. And it gets back to the question you asked me before, like, how, how do people solve these problems? Well, it took getting the Department of Defense, the Veterans Administration, and the Department of Labor to the table with the state workforces, with employers to understand what was happening, with community colleges to understand how they could bring credentialing to the to the fore. I mean, it took all kinds of different people 
It took Congress to pass legislation that every veteran should, every separating service member should go through a transition training program so that they would at least be exposed to the resources that were available to them. And it takes perpetual attention to the process because it's easy to say, well, veteran unemployment is now 3%. We've solved that problem. We don't need that program anymore. We still need that program because 200,000 people leave service every year. What was your job in the Army? Just curious. I assume, I assume you were in the Army? I did. I did. I started off as a maintenance officer, which my husband would scoff at today. <laughs> because you don't, you don't do all the maintenance on the vehicles? Is that the thing? I do not do the maintenance on the vehicle. But I started as a maintenance officer, and then um, I took on a secondary specialty in resource management. And then when I got out and became a civilian, that was where I focused and became comptroller and looked at resourcing strategies and those sorts of things. And then it gets to, again, to this notion of public service. Because I think we all somewhat assume that you could take those skills, you could be a consultant, there, there are more transactionally lucrative uh, jobs that people can pursue. But why does the public service, why should it draw people? Why should people do that when it when it may affect how much they take home and how much they have at the uh, for retirement. My graduate work was in economics, so we would talk about non-monetary compensation here, right? That the feeling that you get of doing good, you know, you can do good in lots of ways in lots of small organizations and big organizations, but you cannot affect the lives of your fellow citizens for good at the scale you can when you are engaged in government, right? And so, if you want to make a difference, if if you want to be engaged in the work of serving others so that their outcomes are better, there's no place to do it where you can have more impact than public service, right, in government. And I think that's a challenge we have right now for this, for the new generations, right? They are very public service motivated, but they don't associate that opportunity with government employment. Um, and so there's a huge communications opportunity for all of us to better tell the story about how service and government is an incredible way to support your fellow human beings. I see that, by the way, back in legislature world, getting, you know, talented, qualified people to agree to run for public office. It is not lucrative, generally at the state level. <laughs> the intangible, the the relational uh, benefits that come from that are, are often very negative uh, in many ways. The the negative perception and what they have to go through, uh, in, you know, from uh, detractors and and some of the, the the evil bile that they get from the other side comes from both sides, by the way. So so I think this question of you know calling you know calling people to public service is really important. We've got to have to articulate that as, as I think you've done a pretty nice job here. Let me ask you this: You've had the good fortune to be around great public administrators. Obviously, the academy is filled with close to a thousand of the, you know, the, the the elite public administrators in the nation. Who are the heroes in your mind? Who are the people that stand out that have influenced you, that have said things or done things that, you know, really left a lasting impression? Um, people you want to emulate. That is such a hard question because I remember the very first like fellow meeting that I went to when I was. When I became the president of Napa, and there was uh, an individual there who was literally a rocket scientist at the beginning of NASA, right, figuring out how to do all of that, 
former comptroller, you know, of the United States, head of GAO. There were so many people around the table. And I was just like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm sitting here having lunch with people whose names are in public administration textbooks. One person who has just an amazing story across his life is Dwight Inc. Right? If you haven't heard of Dwight Inc., he just passed away last year, uh, just before his 100th birthday. He served seven sitting presidents. He was the federal coordinator of response to the Alaska earthquake back in the 60s. He worked on nuclear response. He worked on the Civil Service Reform Act. He just had this amazing career at the highest levels. Nobody knows his name, right? If you're not, if you're outside of the public administration space, you wouldn't know Dwight Inc. He was this amazingly humble human being, and yet he left such a legacy of public service impact. He started in city management and worked his way up to, to the federal level. And I think he's re he really exemplifies the characteristics that we want in, in our public service, right? Humility, concern for other people, an understanding of the mechanisms of government and how to leverage them to get outcomes for people that matter, and a lifetime commitment to that service. So Dwight would be like the exemplar for me of, of what a lifetime of public service is, is all about. You touched on those characteristics, those traits, those skills. But, you know, let's say you're telling your, you're telling your new uh, group of interns, when you step away from this world, uh, retire, win the lottery, whatever you do, you want to be Dwight Inc. What was his essence that they should emulate, that they should strive for? I just think a, a, a natural concern for other people and a willingness to work hard to make their lives better. And I'll say only this in addition, our fellowship is amazingly long-lived. Like our oldest fellow right now is 102. Dwight passed away just before he was 100. We have a number of fellows in their 90s. They've been at this for a long time. They are not stepping back. And I, I think so much of that longevity is a function of their intellectual curiosity. They never stop engaging in their community, in the world around them. They're interested in what's happening and how to make it better. I mean, they're at our meetings, offering solutions. And very seldom is it, well, back when I was doing that job, it's like, here's what's happening now. And here's how lessons can be learned. And here's how solutions can be developed. And, and that is the manifestation of the ethos. Staying engaged, never getting tired of the battle to do better when it comes to government. You, you highlighted intellectual curiosity and sort of maybe there's a tie to longevity in this world as well, right? That if, uh, if, if you're committed to something that matters beyond yourself and you, you are constantly sort of seeking to learn and expand that knowledge, that island that, that you are on and, and uh, making the coastline bigger, the more you learn, the bigger the coastline gets. I like that metaphor of an island and knowledge. That Maybe there's something to that. that, that that's, a, that's a key to success. It's a key to being... Uh, a legend that people recall and and say like, hey, let me tell you about somebody that fits this. I mean, you must have had, you must have served under all kinds of leaders with titles, um, commanders, and, and, and all that kind of thing. Um, 
Is there anyone, any, any leadership trait that you think is key to success as you know, sort of shifting from sort of the public administration, which are all leaders in their own ways. Um, but I'm just thinking about, you know, what is the, what is the consummate leader? What, what image does that bring to mind? You know, I think that the one leadership trait that I've seen matter the most is transparent communication. It's one I've always tried to practice as well. It, it never helps to deny, right? It doesn't help to deny that there's a problem. It doesn't help to deny responsibility. It always helps to acknowledge whatever it is you're working on and accept responsibility. And it always helps to be very transparent about what you're doing to fix the problem and to report back on those fixes. And whenever I've worked for a leader who's practiced those basic communication tenets, I mean, what comes through is courage, what comes through is care for the workforce and the organization, what comes through is commitment to the values of the organization. Because to be transparently communicative means you have to set aside your own pride and ego and focus on the welfare of your organization. And when you do that, the people who work for you pick it up. They pick up that ethos. They pick up the values. They build trust with that leader. And they're willing to do things, if that leader asks, that they wouldn't for someone who didn't exhibit care and commitment and um, transparency. So for me, I think that's the most important feature because it embodies all of the rest. We talk on this uh, podcast a lot about institutions. At the core of our mission at NCSL is the institution of the legislative body, of the people's voice, cornerstone democracy, Article One of the Constitution, and, and and all other state constitutions as well. So these are this is music to my ears. I think to lead these institutions, you have to be committed to the institution and believe in it, something much bigger than yourself, and then practice this this notion of transparent communication. So I hope I hope some people hear that and take that to heart. We should probably uh, wrap up, Terry. What what a terrific privilege for me to talk to you. And and I, I as is often the case, this conversation could go on for far longer. Any last uh, thoughts for the the our elected and and uh, legislative staff out there who are doing their best to to elevate public service? Well, Tim, I want to thank you for the opportunity to join you today. It has been a lot of fun. For folks who are at the state legislator legislature level, I think, again, just focusing on what really is of benefit to your constituents, right? And how can the programs that you are passing legislation around have greater impact? Think about that as you design legislation. The institutions are important and threatened, and we need to be careful about how how we look at them for the future if we want democracy to survive. Federalism is a wonderful thing, and every level has its role to play. We all have a role in protecting the institution. That, that Those are terrific words, because it is, a, at the end of the day, it's about the people of our states, of our country, by the people, of the people, for the people, and you got to put that uh, spotlight right back to, to the, that core, serving others. I am grateful and, and appreciative for what you do and excited about, uh, you know, being part of your organization as well. And uh, thanks for your leadership, Terry. Uh, hopefully we'll, uh, we'll continue this another time, but thank you so, so much. Well, Tim, thank you again. And thank you for NCSL's support of Napa's work.
I'm Tim Story, and I've been talking with Terry Gurdon, President and CEO of the National Academy of Public Administration. Thanks for joining me on Legislature's The Inside Story. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We encourage you to review and rate NCSL Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or Spotify. We also encourage you to check out our other podcasts, Our American States, and the special series, Building Democracy.